0: Hi, welcome to Eye Coach Podcast. My name is Dr. Walt Whitley. Today, we're talking about innovations update with Johnson & Johnson Vision. And our special guest is Caroline Blackie, my good friend and senior medical director of Johnson & Johnson Vision. Welcome, Caroline.
1: Oh, thank you, Walt. It's great to be here today. And in particular, it's wonderful to have an opportunity to connect with you.
0: It's been a while since we've connected, as you as you just mentioned, and you know we know that you have a strong background in ocular surface disease. Uh, can you tell us what, a little bit about what your role is in particular when it comes to that in in uh, with J- Johnson and Johnson Vision?
1: Oh, sure, Walt, and uh, thank you for the question. So currently, my role has fairly broad scope in that I'm essentially overseeing evidence generation for both the vision care business as well as for surgical vision. And of course that includes our ocular surface portfolio.
0: Awesome, awesome. So what we're gonna do is we're gonna talk about you know seven, several different aspects of dry eye and one that is very near and dear to your heart and mine as well is MGD with meibomian gland dysfunction. So can you comment on the evolution of the treatment for MGD?
1: This is one of my favorite Topics: the the evolution of the treatment for NGD. If we look back at the medical literature from going back to say the eighteen hundreds, there's been an awareness and understanding that if you can evacuate stagnated contents from the glands, that those glands then have the opportunity to rehabilitate themselves. And primarily, all of that literature was around the treatment of styes and and hordeola. It wasn't really until the mid to late 1970s that there was a um, a, a clarity around the impact of the meibomian gland function in terms of terraform stability. And I think in a 1977 paper, essentially the very first um, dry eye cascade was published, a very, very simple, beautifully simple diagram showing that when the gland function is not normal, that you have uh, compromised tear film breakup time, and when you can restore it back to normal, that you can improve the tear film stability by improving the, the, the tear film breakup time. And just a few years after that, there was a uh, another publication associating meibomian gland dysfunction with reduced contact lens comfort. And so these these were two kind of uh, key publications that. Sowed the seeds for what we were able to observe over the next thirty years, which is that um, the, the health of the ocular surface is is uh, is dependent upon the health of the meibomian glands and uh, meibomian gland function in particular. Um, the problem was and has been that the practice of manually expressing glands uh, is uncomfortable for patients and actually uncomfortable for doctors so while we had a medical literature that was kind of growing in volume over time saying these glands are important and here's how you can improve their function at the clinical level in terms of daily practice and patient care we weren't seeing this translate into a an improved standard of care Um, and you'll remember yourself Walt from Mm -hmm. early kind of um optometry school days that we would we would talk about warm compresses kind of with a wave of the hand Mm -hmm. and throw out conversations with patients about do warm compresses and things of that nature but there was nothing really targeted or specific and no real kind of impassioned if you do this this will work sort of quality the kind of quality care that we like to deliver Mm -hmm. and so what we um back if we go back to about 2005 2006 when tier science was founded the goal at that time was to innovate a technology that would do the work for the doctor and the patient, and also not cause uh, a lot of discomfort or safety concerns. And so what was kind of breakthrough about that innovation process was that that was achieved in that we now have this uh, automated treatment in the form of the LipaFlow, And in parallel to that, we also had the evolution of a standardization of assessment of meibomian gland function. And that whole process was, was necessary in terms of being able to uh, definitively demonstrate that you have a pre versus post gland function that you can compare
0: uh, Mm -hmm. versus
1: relying on the symptom cascade, which is, as you would well know from all of your years of clinical practice can be, can be very frustrating. Mm -hmm. So if we now fast forward to the present time, what we've seen is that in as our knowledge around this disease state of the impact of meibomian gland dysfunction and the essential nature of meibomian gland function being so foundational to the health of the ocular surface, we now see that by automating and, and safely and easily being able to execute on the treatment of MGD in an in-office setting that's efficacious and can be uh, assessed using um, metrics that don't all require uh, the capturing and sort of um, relying on symptomatology. Uh, We see that the field today is in a completely different situation. So we have a number of different technologies that that have been innovated and brought to market around very specifically the evacuation of mybomian gland contents. Mm-hmm. Um, we also see a, a significant uptick in willingness of, of, uh, eye care professionals to perform expression of the meibomian glands. Mm-hmm. And for any of us who were practicing eye care 20 years ago, to imagine a day when you would be easily able to have a conversation with a colleague in, um, a variety of settings about the importance of expressing myboomian glands it 's almost incomprehensible, so it's sort of ironic that it was the automation of this process mm-hmm. uh, and the efficacy of this treatment that have now brought us to the point where where we 've kind of been able to go all the way back to where we started and, and, and we see definitely um, and i mean an it's entirely different landscape
0: yeah it, and being involved with this, I mean we were one of the early adopt early adopters and had one of the uh, first lipoflow units within the practice and so it's been it's been exciting seeing the the evolution of the treatment but it comes back to what you just what you were just mentioning uh, earlier was structure where with the we know that we have to take a look at the glands but also the function and having a way to 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 uh, to 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 qualify or quantify that to see, are we getting improvement over time? And so that's one of the exciting things where we have these technologies that can help our patients. And so look at, we, we, we know we have structure and function, but looking, before we get to that, we have to look at the prevalence and have a better understanding of my bone and gland dysfunction. And, you know, where are we at within the prevalence? Uh, how do you feel environmental factors and patient behaviors contribute to MGD?
1: My gosh, another wonderful question, Walt. Um, When I think about, before we get right to the prevalence, if we think about one of the inciting factors for negatively impacting gland function, there's been some beautiful work um, done on animal models showing the impact of desiccating stress, or chronic unmanaged desiccating stress. Um, and how it accelerates the aging of the mybocytes within the glands themselves so um, well you'll recall that these glands are holocrine glands so the 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 basal cells of the glands become the oil and with the accelerated aging of the mybocytes the the nature of the oil over time is is changed um, when exposed to chronic desiccating stress and so these glands can become stagnated and so you have a vicious cycle of 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 desiccating stress, causing upregulation of gland function. But if it's unchecked, of course, the system is not designed to stay in this kind of hyper mode. And so uh, ultimately, meibomian gland dysfunction results. And so if you think about now going back to your question about the prevalence and you think about our lifestyles and what we know about the exposure to um, uh, computers, computers, smartphones digital displays that we see if you look at the medical literature fairly high prevalence or much higher prevalence of mgd in pa- uh, patients who spend more time to the tune of like more more than four hours a day versus less than four hours a day on some form of digital device and if you think about that and i think about that of course it's horrifying because um I don't remember a day when I spent anywhere close to less than four hours on some kind of <laughs> yeah, it's digital a device.
0: The thing I'm staring so, at right now, but go I ahead.
1: <laughs> it's terrible. So, so basically um, we're, and what, what happens when you're doing those tasks is, is you're reducing that both the, the quality and the quantity of your blink rate. And the blink is fundamental to the health of the function of these glands. So if we just think about lifestyle, there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's concerning and we both have kids and thinking about how in the world do we manage this uh, for, for little kids. And if you look at some of the recent work of people like uh Dr. Priya Gupta um showing the very high prevalence of MGD uh, I'm sorry, my and gland atrophy among pediatric populations, mm-hmm. uh, it's definitely uh, we 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 as medical professionals, I think um, need to take it upon ourselves to really consider what we can do in terms of raising the standard of care so that we are looking for uh, assessing mybomy gland health in all of our patients and not not waiting and practicing this highly reactive medicine until sort of dry eye symptoms occur. but if we consider other aspects like um environmental environmental exposures and makeup and 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 all of those things anything that that disrupts the integrity of the homeostasis or the tear film mm-hmm. is potentially going to have a negative impact and and is likely to or has the possibility of increasing exposure to desiccating stress yeah, and any actually- yeah and so any kind of any inciting inflammatory excitation um, of the ocular surfaces is also going to have a potential negative effect, so.
0: I just had a patient earlier this morning that was complaining about uh, dry eyes. It was asked about her makeup. She goes, I haven't worn makeup forever. Which makeup should I use? And we started having that conversation about, all the different chemicals you need to know what's good for the good eye what's not so good but there's so many that have harmful chemicals that can exacerbate the dryness and make those meibomian gland uh glands worse mm-hmm. so if someone had a uh, if someone asked you such as me ask you right now what is that number so what is the prevalence of MGD what is that number that you would say is it 67 percent, 69 percent, 3 percent, because we know those numbers can be all over the place.
1: Right. So great question, Walt. And if you think about why those numbers are all over the place, part of the reason is because we've had very poor boundaries laid down in terms of um, exactly what is required in terms of specific metrics that you would have at your fingertips in the exam lane to make the diagnosis of M G D. So other than the later stage diagnosis, which sort of diagnoses itself, not terribly complicated. Mm -hmm. At what point do you draw the line and say, this patient definitely has M G D. And if you think to yourself about everything we read about in the literature, um, it's not, it's not exquisitely clear in its earliest stages. Mm -hmm. And so that's problematic. However, if we take a look at certain subpopulations, there's a little more clarity around those numbers. So if I take um, dry eye disease as an example, there there are some key studies that are pointed to that, that would give you a some clarity on prevalence. Uh, and there was a, uh, let's see, Lemp published a study back in 2012, Lemp et al, saying that 86% of, of patients with dry eye disease of known origin had um had mgd there was a recent uh, systematic review that was presented at arvo in 2019 i believe mm-hmm. um, t- taking all put put you know a uh, putting all studies in the published medical literature through a very rigid sort of stringent filter over um, over a number of years so probably the last 15 years and that came back with somewhere somewhere between sort of 75 and 80 percent of all dry eye patients so multiple studies not one study but a systematic review if we look at your Sjogren's patients those are upwards of 90 plus percent all have MGD if we look at glaucoma patients that are currently being treated with topical medications, those patients are in somewhere in the 80% category yeah. of MGD. If we look at pre-cataract patients, if you're looking at somewhere between 50 and 60% of those patients all have MGD. If we look at contact yeah. lens wearing patients, somewhere in the 60% think in systematic review, general clinical population is somewhere in the 40% ballpark.
0: You know, you brought you brought up Sjogren's, right? And normally, yeah. we think of Sjogren's; they don't produce any tears, so we're always thinking aqueous deficient. But I, I don't know any of my Sjogren's patients that don't have MGD as well, and so yeah. that's why you have to look at both all the time.
1: You do, and if you think about your Sjogren's patient, even if—and actually, it's really—I love I love the Sjogren's patient because the Sjogren's patients were the ones back in the nineteen fifties that that were. They are the reason that we that that dry eye disease came to kind of be known as a condition was through mm-hmm. the lens of the Sjogren's patient. That's mm-hmm. that's when this term first came into being, and of course it's it's evolved tremendously over the last seventy years. Um, yeah. But if you think about the Sjogren's patient and the fact that that let's let's say it's an exocrine gland issue, and that the the there there is an insufficient quantity of lacrimal production and all of the inflammatory cascade that results in that then of course what you have is chronic exposure to desiccating straits which Mm -hmm. is a perfect storm for resulting in meibomian gland disease and so while while that um that has not been sort of Tested or demonstrated in a, I mean, I don't know how you would design a study to do that, but you can see why medically uh, understanding the pathophysiology. How it makes total sense. That it would be almost impossible to find a Shergren's patient that doesn't have some degree of of negative impact on on gland function, my you know, gland function.
0: In the end, when we're looking at the prevalence and has it, you know, how, how it's been increasing, the great thing is people have been looking right? We've talked that's about right. it's only not obvious if you're not looking, you're not expressing the glands, you're not taking a look at the mybography. And so, you know, the, the more that we look, the more we're going to find that. And that's one of the things that's been fun to see, you know, all of our colleagues doing as an uh, eye care uh, profession. Uh, so my next question for you is, how does MGD impact the pre-surgical assessment of the patient and IOL selection? Uh,
1: sure. So, Walt, if you think about The pre-surgical assessment and how much attention is paid to the measurements that allow the surgeon to determine what um, power of lens would be placed in the eye during the surgical process. Many of those measurements are, or a significant number of them, are actually measured off the tear film itself. So if we think about something as basic as keratometry and we remember that keratometric readings are not actually measured off the cornea, they're measured off the tear film, which overlays the cornea. Mm-hmm. It becomes kind of exquisitely clear that if that tear film is not, um, is not as stable as it needs to be, that that will dramatically impact those measurements. And there've been a number of studies over time, not directly, Focused on meibomian gland dysfunction, but rather on the impact of the stability of the tear film for these kinds of metrics that rely on the tear film or measure of the tear film. That Mm -hmm. you can imagine, it makes total sense that we're starting to see compelling data that indicates if a patient does have MGD, that you can be in a situation where you're where you're gathering um, very sub quality data in order to make your decisions.
0: Yeah, I mean, Uh, uh, go ahead. Go ahead.
1: I I was just going to say the other area that that uh, we do know quite a lot about now is is, um, just the the patient experience in the post-surgical period so there's a number of studies showing that patients that have mgd pre-surgery experience an exacerbation of their mgd post-surgery and this very significantly negatively experience uh, Impacts the experience of the patient in the post-surgical period, which, if you don't know about the MGD, even if you've elected not to treat it, which d- doesn't make good medical sense, but even if you had done that, that can catch and um, does catch a lot of surgeons by surprise mm-hmm. in the post-surgical period um, for and, good reason.
0: And we've had this discussion. You identify it before; it's the patient's issue. If you wait and the, you do surgery, and the patient's having issue, and it's due to ocular surface disease, I mean, that's the patient that keeps on giving and will be at your practice quite a bit because we're not be able to we're not gonna be able to meet their expectations and so one of my partners uh, Liz Yu I mean she does the uh, liposcan on every single one of her cataract patients that way she has an understanding of the ocular surface of the meibomian glands to see what she's working with prior to making that IOL uh, selection.
1: And you know um, Walt you're reminding me that the if you think about the, the ASCRS guidelines that were published in 2019 around the kind of preclinical care for phaco and keratorefractive mm-hmm. surgery patients and the importance of doing exactly what you're describing with Dr. Yu um, assessing assessing the 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 gland uh, uh, the ocular surface in general but calling out specifically the meibomian glands both function and structure and you're just as you were speaking i was just remembering back in the early 90s i don't know 1992 or something something like that um there was a publication uh, actually uh, to do with gpc so giant papillary conjunctivitis and contact lens wear and in that article the lead author whose last name i think was martin spoke about this old, I'm, I'm going to use this in quote, air quotes, old ophthalmology axiom uh-huh. that uh, an, an eye exam or an ophthalmological evaluation was not complete until the lids had been fully manipulated and evaluated. Uh-huh. <laughs> and if you think about the ACRS guidelines, they have this look, lift, push, pull um, component to their algorithm, for these yep. pre-surgical patients and, and how it's, you know, it's something that we needed to be told to do. So it's kind of interesting how, when you, when you look back over time and you recognize our forefathers, well, while, while well, we do keep making progress. There are some areas where perhaps we should go, <laughs> yeah. go back and read the old stuff and learn from,
0: Definitely. learn from the
1: past, you know, it's about how to do it right. And don't skip steps.
0: Bring bringing up the algorithm from ASCRS is just looking at the non-invasive pre-op measurements. And take a look at the topography, and that's one of the things I learned from Liz. If you you know you see the hot spots or cool spots, you got to figure out what's going on with that cornea. If you have K measurements, one greater than the other, you know is that a flag on you know why are these corneas not symmetrical uh, for, for for these patients or any irregular patterns? And so trying to address that and taking that into consideration uh, before you pursue uh, you know further steps within uh, the surgical uh, procedure or even before doing surgery. So does a pre-surgical treatment with lipoflow enhance the patient experience and post-surgical outcomes? I know what my answer is, but I will let you go first.
1: <laughs> so I can say as simple, it appears the answer is yes. <laughs> I could offer some some data to support that. Um, there, there are a couple of, of, of good studies I can, I can mention. So Dr. Matosian um, recently published a study showing that uh, this was a retrospective study and a retrospective chart review and she was able to show that for patients whom she had treated the MGD with, with uh, lipoflow thermal pulsation prior to surgery um, she had uh, she she had significant uh, changes to her measurements based on the fact that she had a more stable tear form so you can imagine that more accurate measurements allow for more accurate results and in terms of patient outcomes that would translate into a variety of factors um, not not the least of which is is quality of, of vision so that's really important some other studies have shown the impact of improvement in patient symptoms in the post-surgical period. So I, I mentioned previously that we know there is a flare-up of the MGD in that post-surgical period. If mm-hmm. you could pre-treat the MGD effectively, that you can avoid that. And if you can avoid some of that, then you can avoid some of the inflammatory cascade that would be uh, on the MGD side that, that would cause um, additional discomfort to the patient. So that would Im- influence patient outcomes, and yeah. um, and there are a number a number of other a number of other areas that we could talk about, but basically, yes, it it does.
0: And I'm going to say, yes, it does as well. And so that's why, you know, for our practice, we are, are so uh, aware. We're always looking for dry eye. Everybody has dry eye until proven otherwise, especially at our cataract refractive surgery patients, uh, because of these things that we talked about. And with our referring doctors, you know, we challenge them, treat the ocular surface, look at the meibomian glands, treat that before the the referral. That way we can have optimal uh, calculations get our patients uh, optimal results um so li- lipoflow technology you know i as i mentioned i've a lot of experience with it i mean you you were here when we first got it and oh, helped right. help train us a- a- and our team so we know that technology treats the glands from inside uh, from the, the inside of the eye with vector thermal pulsation what advantage does this serve for patient outcomes
1: so the the um let's go back to discussion we were having earlier about the evolution of treatment of mgd and how we know we've always known that evacuating gland contents will have positive results in terms of improving the the gland function or allowing the glands the the opportunity to rehabilitate to improve their function Um, the problem is that it's super uncomfortable (laughs) when you when you experience it and when you apply heat to the external surface the the heat source once removed uh, is is essentially rendered uh, um, kind of ineffective because there's the the vasculature of the eyelid is such that it it wicks the heat away almost inst- instantaneously and so what we learned in the in the innovative process of developing lipoflow is that if you heat from the inside the inner lid surface that you get the heat right up to the source of uh, to, to the location of the meibomian glands themselves, just based on the anatomy of the eyelid, um, and if you can keep the heat there while you physically manipulate the glands directionally, so from the the, the distant end of the gland to the orifice of the gland, that you can easily m- move the material out of the gland without causing uh, discomfort. So much discomfort to the patient mm-hmm. and so because you're not having to apply so much pressure and force to the eyelid in that process so the heat is effective and it's provided at the right time and it's simultaneously applied along with the evacuation and directional evacuation pressure over those glands that there's significantly less uh, sort of trauma and discomfort to the to the eyelid tissue plus you can do all of the glands at the same time so you don't have to target certain eyelid areas. Right. And so I think all of these factors together um, are probably explain why the lipoflow is so effective at improving gland function and why it is often referred to as a preferred treatment of choice. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question
0: it, it does. It does answer the question because, uh, once again, addressing the function and and how those my my bummy glands are are working, um, but you know we do find many patients do show improvement in the symptoms. But it's all about education, as we know, setting proper expectation for the patients on what to expect. So long term, I think the last data, the longest study I saw was Griner. It was three years. Patients were still doing. Uh, having uh, relief and uh, improvement with their myboming gland function. Um, is there longer data than that, other than his three-year study?
1: Not in a controlled study, Walt. Okay. Um, okay. Not in a controlled study. And uh, if if I were to think about, you know, with just the way we live today, whether it would be reasonable uh-huh. to expect that, even if they, even if you could find a patient that never needed – their mybomian gland disease treated more than once i would say that would be that would be not in alignment with the pathophysiology and our understanding of the condition
0: yeah yeah well typically we're we i mean we are my dry patients i'm seeing them minimum twice a year and if they need a repeat procedure i'm still going to do that but we all have that patient go well how long does this last and so that's the that's the paper that i i do always reference actually i'm going to throw in um, a another-
1: well, well, I can offer you just one thing There was so, so that um, there is one study that was published in 2016, which was a large multicenter randomized controlled trial. And in that study, we found two things. One was that, uh, for these were dry eye patients with MGD that were treated with lipoflow and, uh, they, they were not permitted or they would be exited from the study, which was fine to receive additional prescription. Uh, treatments for their dry eye during the study period at the end of that study it was a 12-month study so they received one lipoflow treatment at the end of that study um, 86% of patients were not eligible for a re-treatment at the end of that study after a 12-month period Mm -hmm. what we also learned in that study was that uh, early intervention optimizes outcomes so for those patients that were had been diagnosed more recently versus your your kind of chronic dry eye sufferer those patients tended to have better outcomes so also very consistent with what you would expect from a chronic progressive disease
0: mm-hmm. well we are almost wrapping this up but i could keep asking you questions all day long but i'm going to ask you one more question one more question here is: uh, is 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 you know what's next for j and j in ocular surface disease uh,
1: thank you for that question walt so at 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 j and j, we stand firmly in our in and on our credo. And so our main focus is always going to be increasing access to care for patients and increasing knowledge state around the disease state for doctors. And so, as you see, um, as you see us move forward, I would expect to see innovations that support access to care for patients, and then also act, uh, increased understanding of the disease state for doctors. And we do have our next generation activator that will be that will be launched later in 2021. Um, so watch the space for that. But when you when you think about where we're headed, that's that's a that's a good way to think about where our focus lies.
0: Well, awesome, awesome. Hey, well, thank you so much, Caroline, uh, for being here and sharing us uh, with us, you know, things that you've been working on, you know, uh, what J&J, Johnson Johnson Vision's been up to. Uh, and thank you all, the listeners, to our Dry Coach podcast.
1: Thank you, Walt. What a pleasure it is to have an opportunity to connect with you today and to talk about one of our favorite subjects, <laughs> my and <myibomian laughs> gland disease. And maybe <laughs> one day, maybe one day we'll... Uh, we'll look back and 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 feel really excited about the tremendous progress that we've all made as a profession in terms of raising the standard of care for all of our patients. I look forward to that.
0: Perfect. Well, thank you once again.
1: Thank you, Walt. Have a great afternoon.